0: Welcome back to the High Impact Physician Podcast. Today's episode, we have Dr. Mark Schnitzer. He's currently a medical director at Baylor Scott and the White Quality Alliance. He's a neurosurgeon, he's an artisan, and he's on a mission to make the right thing to do, the easy thing to do. On this episode, Sandy and Mark are digging into a really subtle difference between minutiae and fundamentals. They're also talking about how to get a team on board with your vision. The recipe for creating a miracle. I think you guys are going to really enjoy that. And the true definition of forgiveness in the context of healthcare and Mark's forgiveness practice. I think you guys will find that really practical and helpful. Hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Okay, so what's it like in Dallas, Texas today?
0: Well, it's a little bit overcast Um, I have not been outside. And I moved here in the middle of Feb. And as you know, in the middle of March, we got locked down, probably within a week after my family joined me. So we, it's not been normal. (laughs) Dallas is a great city, but we haven't really got to enjoy it or explore it like we would like.
1: Okay, so you might be the first family to move and unpack your boxes in under six months. (laughs)
0: Right. Well, we have a very small footprint. We like it that way. So we don't get attached to things. One of the hazards with that is when you move to a new place with no dining room table or sofa, with the expectation that you will be able to go buy a dining room table and a sofa, and then that doesn't happen, Uh, then you end up without a dining room or a table or sofa. Uh, So that's a... a (laughs) but it's no hill for a climber.
1: Oh, gosh. Sounds like there's a lot of metaphors in there we could unpack philosophically about life (laughs) or leadership. I love it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you for being available. I've been really looking forward to this conversation and excited to dig into some of the practical things that you've learned about leadership and some thoughts you're having about creating the future of healthcare. So thanks for joining me. Josh,
0: what a great pleasure for me. I enjoy reading your essays and musings and contributions on LinkedIn every day.
1: Well, I'll give you a hint. It definitely comes from design thinking and really co-creating with people like you. So let's jump on in to cultivate some new insights and spark some ideas together. And I'd love to have you, for our listeners and myself, Let's start out by having you just tell us a bit about you and what got you to where you are.
0: So I am the oldest of three children. Our dad was a doctor. I always intended to be a doctor, but I always considered pre-med to be a state of mind, not a major. Subsequently, then I went to um, engineering school with the expectation that I would go into medical school after that, which I did in a little bit of a circuitous way, Uh, but subsequently I turned out as a very curious interface professional, I would say. I can speak the language of responsible stewardship value, best practice on the enterprise process side, as well as the language of the artisans the doctors who are actually caring for each unique patient one at a time. And it gives me a very interesting perspective, standing with a foot in each camp, and a certain empathy to be with the doctors who I love very much. That has taken me on my journey from 20-year history as a neurosurgeon in active clinical practice to the last five years or so where I've made a commitment to do something bigger to make the right thing to do the easy thing to do for the people who are actually doing the daily work of healthcare.
1: So you intrigued me there when you talked about an engineering background, a neurosurgeon background. Talk a little bit more about what inspired you to become a physician.
0: Well, to become a physician, I think it probably had a lot to do with my dad. Being a doctor was the only thing that I knew growing up, and and he was deeply loved. I mean, even today, he passed away about eight years ago, and people, when they meet me in Dallas, which is where I grew up, but haven't lived for 40 years, people still say, oh, are you related to Ben Schnitzer, who was my father? And, and When I acknowledge that, they say, oh, what a great guy. We loved him. And this is from, you know, everybody from doctors to administrators to barbers, people in the community. So it was an aspiration for a long time. But one of the things that I made a deliberate choice not to study urology, which is what he practiced for many years, because I knew I would be making that decision in my mid-20s And I thought if I did that, it would be the last decision I would ever make, because it would be, it seemed to me, really foolish of me to study urology and then not move back to Dallas and not join his practice. And at the time, I was really concerned. I thought, you know, you can't be a man in your father's house. I I need to plant my own flag. I need to create my own identity. And I chose that. Just a choice, it, I don't want to ascribe any meaning to it, but it, just what happened. And I'm glad for it. I mean, it worked out fine. Things would have been much different had I joined his practice as a urologist, but I'm very pleased with how things worked out.
1: I'm really struck how you talk about your journey as part of crafting your identity, and I think that's such a powerful concept, especially in today's world, where a lot of physicians are experiencing almost an identity whiplash. So I'm really appreciating how a journey is a lot about crafting our identity, about how some of it is it can be intentional and some of it just happens. Tell us a story about maybe one of your biggest challenges in becoming a physician and what lesson you took away from that.
0: I think in a fairly process-oriented, logical way. And because of that, engineering was easier for me than biology for example, and typical pre-med type of studies. And I cannot remember minutiae, but I can remember fundamentals and derive the minutiae. So if it's a formula, I got that. I can figure that out. But if it's memorizing biochemistry or microbiology, that's a big struggle for me. So the first two years of medical school were really challenging for me because it's enormous amount of memorizing. Second two years were like cream cheese. I knew how to identify a problem and then the most likely origin of that problem. And then I could create a differential diagnosis and logically eliminate those through just a standard logical process of elimination. So the second two years were easy, but the first two really tough. And after that, as a clinician, solving hard problems was fun to me. It was, where is the most likely place for the fewest number of defects or problems or illness or lesions that can cause all or most of the physical manifestations of this patient? And that was a game. That was really fun for me. And I was good at that. I think for that reason, uh, I have tremendous love for people who make those first two years look easy.
1: <laughs> that's good. Okay, I'm really struck by your notion that you love to solve hard problems, and that's fun. We've all been hearing about the COVID pandemic, and so I never thought of it as you know a hard problem that could be fun. We know physicians are experiencing just unprecedented rates of change amidst this, and there's just lots of change going on. So as the engineer who loves to solve hard problems and thinks of them being fun, what are two or three tips that you could offer physicians to help lead change more effectively? And that could be changes either personally or professionally.
0: So I'm not going to solve the COVID problem. I just want to be upfront about about that. um, But but the idea of change is, I think it starts with an intention, an acknowledgement that there is some value to personal development. And you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. So the first thing has to be acknowledging that whatever current state is, it could be either incrementally better or transformationally better i distinguish those two things deliberately but once there's been an acknowledgement that there's an opportunity for improvement then there has to be some kind of a self-awareness a survey of what is it that i can influence and about myself and how can i engage other people in this vision so that everybody is working towards the piece of the ultimate vision that forwards their own personal interest. I have had a couple of occasions where I felt the rug was pulled out from under me. And, you know, at the time I was metaphorically, if not actually in a fetal position, crying And then making a declaration that there's, I call it a recipe for the miraculous, the recipe for creating a miracle. And I can't take credit for this. Someone taught this to me, but the recipe is personal integrity plus public authenticity plus making a promise that you don't know how to keep. And so... What occurred for me is that those moments in history that occurred for me as absolute disaster were the tuition that was required for me to acquire whatever skills and mindset were necessary to move on to the next thing, which was measurably better, but wouldn't have happened without that impulse, that disaster.
1: Okay. You are really knitting together words that create such a paradox in my mind and my heart. I love paradoxes. First of all, I love that self-awareness could be a survey. That is so awesome. I love that crying and declaration, how those two can go together. This recipe for the miraculous, I've totally written down because I feel like you're creating at least a mental invitation next time any of us bump up against a big old wall, that we can at least have hope that there's ways to reframe those moments. So good. So good. I'm wondering maybe to build on that, as I think about people, providers who might be feeling scared or overwhelmed at work, what's another strategy you might recommend for people that are feeling off their game right now or stressed?
0: I've been practicing for a long time a forgiveness practice, and it's too easy to fall into a sense of victimhood. And when I look around at all the things that have stressed me or bothered me or troubled me in the past, the common denominator is me. And so I have adopted this deliberate forgiveness, which is first to forgive whoever I felt was the offending party, not to justify whatever action was there, but just so that they don't have a free pass to live in my head anymore. And then I deliberately forgive myself for allowing the upset. What happened or is happening is just what's so. The suffering is optional. And so I found that that, that's been Very good for my blood pressure, and it's been very good for a lot of things to just acknowledge that I am cause in the matter. I can suffer and be a victim, or I can experience the discomfort and be who is necessary to get out of whatever the conundrum is. And once I have chosen who I'm going to be, then I do the things necessary to fulfill that declaration. And as a result of that, then I have the reward of that. You'll hear many people say, oh, if I had such and such, I would do this and then I would be that. But I think that that sequence is wrong. I think you have to declare who you're going to be and then align what you do with that in order to have what it is that you needed more.
1: Okay. There are so many points there that I'm just absorbing. One that I want to underline that for me really pulled up a visual is this whole notion that forgiveness is actually a chance to recognize that someone does not have a free pass to live in my head. When you said that, I almost got this visual of, this unsupervised wild beast running around and I can open up a door and he or she can go running out of my head and be free. And I've never heard forgiveness talked about that way. That's very real at a cellular level.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for that acknowledgement. You know, sometimes people misunderstand the concept of forgiveness. They think that they're allowing a behavior and accepting it as good, but I don't see it that way. I see it as an opportunity to acknowledge that something happened and I don't need to be held prisoner to that anymore. I don't need to interact with those people anymore or that environment anymore. I don't forget, but I don't ruminate.
1: I will tell you for all the descriptions and tips and advice I've heard about forgiveness, it's resonated with me at some level, though there still was a little bit of an edge or a boundary or something that was there and now as I'm listening to you you framed it in a way it feels so soft and healing and kind I'm having a personal aha right now thinking about it this way (laughs) thank you it's good sure very good so you've offered some really practical tips to support physicians and leaders today, lots of them. I'm curious to shift gears a little bit and as you think about a world that has historically struggled to manage finances of healthcare and yet we're looking in this new world about how to shape the future of healthcare, what are a few of your ideas to help organizations deliver more efficient cost-effective, and healing healthcare?
0: God, I love that question. Thank you. I am really fixated on the idea of responsible stewardship. And for three years before I moved to Dallas, I was a physician advisor for a large healthcare organization. And essentially, one of my accountabilities was defect management, which is I was accountable for dealing with the insurance company's denial of coverage for inpatient hospital services. And what occurred for me is that half the time, the insurance company was wrong. They made an error in interpreting their own guidelines. But half the time, the doctors were wrong in what they did. And as I saw this you know, 3,000 times, so I had a lot of experience with it, what became increasingly clear to me is that as doctors, we're taught the who, the what, the why, and the how, but we're not taught the when and the where, which is the responsible stewardship part. And when we produce doctors out of undergraduate school medical school, residency, and then we put them in the position of actually treating real patients, then we beat them up. We expect them to somehow transcend into this knowledge of responsible stewardship without ever having explained the why they need to be responsible stewards. And so, you know, as I think about what we can do for this, there's a couple of things. One is I really enjoyed your conversation with Mark Stevens and his commitment to education. And I share that commitment to education. I think, and in fact I do this, I teach high school students when I have the opportunity, the idea of community health literacy because uh, education is one of the social determinants of health. And if people in the community had a more reasonable expectation of stewardship of healthcare resources. And then, if we taught medical students and residents the when and the where for providing healthcare services, we could eliminate even more of the waste from the organization. So, that's one thing that occurs to me. And the other thing that occurs to me, though, is the idea of accountable care let's say i mean this is it's not new it's just a new name for an old thing but who controls the premium who controls the insurance premium as we see when if the doctors don't control the insurance premium and the doctors only get paid to rescue care then when the volume of rescue care goes down healthcare organizations go broke and voila you know 20 or 25% of FTEs are being reduced from healthcare organizations. And so the alignment between insurance companies and fee-for-service providers is orthogonal. It doesn't intersect in a single point. And there are more elegant ways that could enable the insurance companies and their actuarial expertise and the doctors and other healthcare providers who can get in front of the need for rescue. If people knew, don't drink and drive, stay fit, don't smoke, put your kid in the car seat. Things that could reduce the need for rescue. You know, those are things that now stand in sharp relief to what the situation we're in now is. Now we kind of have no choice. We have to do stuff like that. But it's not new. This is Kaiser's been talking about this forever. Fifty years, more, sixty maybe.
1: Okay. You are knitting together so many words and combinations I've never heard before. And I'm looking at our clock and I want to ask permission to wrap up this conversation and then bring you on for another one to talk about creating the future of healthcare. Would you be open to that?
0: Oh, this is great for me, and you're an extremely generous listener, so thank you.
1: Well, I have never been in a conversation where someone talks about a journey helps to shape their identity, that forgiveness is in the same conversation of financial stewardship and defect management, where someone talks about an actual recipe for miraculous, and then I wrote down a word, I'm going to so look up, alignment is orthological what was that word? Orthological?
0: <laughs> Orthogonal. It, Orthogonal. It, um, yeah. I mean, so the way I remember that word when I learned it in a math class 50 years ago is uh, two lines that aren't parallel, but don't intersect in a single point.
1: I am so looking that up. That just sounds very interesting. I love it. Well, I want to wrap up this conversation by giving you a moment to wrap out with your closing words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners and how people can connect with you.
0: Oh, that's really great. Thanks. I think what's most important for me to share with my physician colleagues who aspire to leadership positions is to be intentional about your desire to be of service. Uh, servant leadership is not something that's necessarily inborn in doctors, especially probably surgeons. But the idea of leadership, meaning creating a shared vision of the future that helps forward the intention of all the people involved so that there's a buy-in rather than a top-down mandate goes a long way to touch, move, and inspire colleagues. And also I would say that the value of making this distinction between commitment and attachment is worthwhile. It's very valuable to be committed, but sometimes unrewarding to be attached. And I think people should marinate on that a little bit. It's a valuable distinction to have. Well, maybe easy that's
1: to- part of the miracle, right? The idea of not being attached has something to do with making promises you don't know how to keep.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. But but also the idea of a promise that you don't know how to keep is, means that you're open to things that you didn't know that you didn't know. Yes. And I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, and I welcome connections there.
1: Yes. So good. I have so enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking forward to connecting again to really hear more of your thoughts on creating the future of healthcare. I know you've had some experience with new program design that would be so relevant during this time. Thank you very much for your time today.
0: Sandy, it's absolutely my pleasure. I look forward to connecting again.